Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. Good morning, new friends. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. I grew up in a suburb outside of Chicago, and in fourth grade, one of my two best friends, Amy Jackson, was a girl who had come from a faraway land called Alabama, and really, it felt like another planet, quite frankly. I messaged her this morning, I'm in the motherland. <laughs> really excited about that. When it came time to go to college, a family in the town next to mine was hosting the admissions officer, um, showing a video of a school in California. So my mom and I are driving there across sort of icy streets, and she says, honey, this is going to be, you know, a nice video, but that doesn't mean that you're going to this school. So I see the video, I see the beach, I'm like, it's exactly the school I'm going to, yay! And honestly, if I had um, come here to Samford on this day, I would have said exactly the same thing. It came to pass in the fall of 1987, I start at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. And when I got to Westmont, I noticed two things. One is that I saw my peers living a life of love for a world in need. I saw students who would go downtown Santa Barbara and build relationships with folks who are homeless. Um, I saw folks uh, travel to South Africa. This is during apartheid, people. Nelson Mandela was in prison, but to build relationship between folks who are white, folks who are black. On our spring break, it's funny, I've always been sort of braggy about this, 500 students drive to Ensenada, Mexico to serve pastors and congregations there. But now that I just heard 825 people for Sanford Gives Back, I'm going to be less braggy about the 500. But it was exciting to me to see people my age living a life of love for a world in need. The second thing I saw were students who took their relationship with Christ seriously. Uh, a friend in my dorm, Kathy, said, Margo, the most important thing to me is knowing and loving Jesus Christ. And when she said it, something clicked, right? Because I'd seen it with my eyes, I heard her say it, and I knew that's what I want because that is life that really is life. This, this smarty pants religious teacher asked Jesus, what's the most important thing, right? He says, what's the most important thing? Because whatever Jesus says, he's going to be able to poke holes in. And Jesus says, this is the most important thing. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Everything depends on these two. Friends, this is what you're made for. That's kind of where the story ends in Matthew's gospel, in Mark's gospel, but Luke kept listening, and there was a follow-up question. Follow-up question was, who's my neighbor? And um, Jesus tells a story, I'll bet you know it, about the Good Samaritan where a Jewish man who, you know, that's Jesus' audience, Jewish man beat up by the side of the road, and uh, the fellow who comes along to be the hero to rescue him is dun, 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 like the bad guy, the Samaritan, wrong race, wrong religion, like despised, hated. And I just found out this morning, my friend Jonathan Brooks was here this year. Remember, he talked about Samaria, and he said, that's the place you don't want to go. So Jesus says, these are the two important things, love God, love neighbor, and the question is, who's my neighbor? And this is it. Our neighbor, says Jesus, is the one in that place where uh, we probably don't want to go. I felt like I was getting so far away from home when I went to college in California. Turns out, the week that I started school, my, parents, my mom and her new husband moved to Southern California also. 
Los Angeles, Santa Monica, right adjacent to Venice Beach. If you've ever seen, if you've ever seen a movie filmed in California with a beach, people on a boardwalk, um, women roller skating in bikinis, people eating fire, like, those are my neighbors. <laughs> um, when we arrived, there was this thing happening. There was this huge sort of encampment at the beach of people who lived outside. And I don't mean they put their sleeping bags out at night. I mean there were tents and couches and lamps and mothers and fathers and children, huge encampment that lived at the beach. But property owners sort of felt like we paid a lot of money to live near the beach and, you know, we don't have to want to look at this, this mess. And so there was this big thing going on in the city council. One of my first weekends at school, well, let's say I'm a month in. I come home, see my mom and my stepdad, go to the beach, maybe I'm shopping for um, something on the boardwalk, and I look out on the sandy part of the beach, and I see like 200 people in a huge circle. I felt like there was maybe some clapping and some chanting. I think they were singing, We Shall Overcome, but I, I might have just made that part up. 200 people, I found out it is called the Council of Justice. What? <laughs> I grew up with Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, the Justice League. Like, if there's a council of justice, I want in. <laughs> and so this is folks with and without homes who were organizing about this business of getting kicked off the beach. And afterwards, I sort of go up to them and I say, you know, I go to school two hours from here, so I don't know if I can really be helpful, but I'd love to. And they said, oh yeah, you know, we've got these flyers. Um, if you can copy some of these and bring them back, that would be a great thing. And what I did end up doing was going back to school, the fancy clothes in my closet that my mom had gotten me that I'd never worn, I sold those and uh, went to Kinko's and made a lot of copies and brought them back. But on the first night that I discovered this Council of Justice, went home, my mom had made a really nice meal, and the dinnertime conversation between my mom, my stepdad, and myself turns to this business of um, what was happening in the community. And if you can believe it, we did not see eye to eye. <laughs> and so it really, it was just a train wreck. But throughout, they're real calm and rational and collected. And I was not quite as articulate. And I just ended up doing a lot of crying um, because it's complicated for one thing. Um, but I just, I, I couldn't quite, I just, I knew something was not right. There were just lots of tears. And at the end of dinner, my mom reaches over, touches my arm, and she says, honey, I felt that way when I was your age. Oh, no, she didn't. People didn't even say that in 1987, but it just like welled up from the depths of my being. They were the worst words I had ever heard. Because I, what I heard my mom saying was, you know, when I was young, I cared about this world that God loves, but now I'm sophisticated, you know, I'm wiser. Um, and I've chosen a life of comfort, safety, security, and a life that's all about myself. Now, in retrospect, I don't think she really said that, but that's how it sounded to me, and I didn't want it. Um, when I looked at the generation, when I looked at the generation above mine, it seemed like their concerns were like mortgage, property tax, insurance, 401k, like whatever that is. <laughs> and as I imagine getting older, like I saw this horrible vision of minivan, car seat, stroller, all this stuff, like, <laughs> like who wants that life? <laughs> Not me. I remember I had uh, volunteered with the youth ministry at a church near my school, 
And there was another uh, youth leader. He was probably around 30. And, and I remember him saying that he and his wife had signed a mortgage. And I'm like, ah, so long, sucker. Like, <laughs> have a nice time on the road to hell. <laughs> um, it just seemed like the worst. Because I knew that God cared for a world in need. But as I looked at the generation above mine, I did not see anyone who had this heart for the world the way that Jesus Christ has a heart for a world in need. Summer after my sophomore year, <clears throat> I had the opportunity to go to South Africa. It was a great summer, and at the end, we're sort of debriefing with um, the leader of the organization who had, who had welcomed us there, and we're all like, oh yeah, we're gonna graduate, and we're gonna come back, and we're gonna fight the power, and he's like, hey, 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 nope, settle. Don't, like, don't do it. <laughs> we don't want you. He said, but your own country does have wounds in need of healing. And that really stuck with me when I went back home. I met a guy at my church. He had just graduated, like, from another, another school. And he had spent uh, the previous summer in Camden, New Jersey, hashtag, most dangerous city in America, doing like a summer camp for kids or something. And he was gathering up like other college um, volunteers who do the same thing the next summer, like this, this camp for kids. And I'm like, what? I said, Reuben, um, I know camp because I grew up going to Camp Minnewonka on the shimmering shores of Lake Michigan, like sailing and bike trips and sand dunes, like totally no camp. I said, so what we do is it's like we drive to New Jersey and then we get in a bus and we go to the camp. And Reuben says, no, we are the camp. I'm like, that doesn't sound like sailing. <laughs> right, a little a camp in the neighborhood, um, in a church in these kids' neighborhood. <clears throat> um, but I do it, and uh, Urban Promise is what it's called. If you don't have plans for this summer or next summer, please check it out. The first night we're there, they feed us, they gather us up. Uh, about a hundred college interns, and they say, you know, we know you're all here because you love kids. I'm like, what? I did not get that memo. <laughs> I missed that. And, um, and most of you are here because of this guy. And they introduced the speaker, and I guess he had spoken at a bunch of college chapels like this one and had recruited a bunch of, of young people to come for the summer. And his name was Tony Campolo. And as he started talking, um, I heard in his heart, in his voice, um, a love for the poor, for folks on the margins, um, you know, grappling with systematic injustice. And I said, there it is. There's one old guy who cares about a world in need. And I have since done the, the math. He was, oh my gosh, he was 55 and still um, his heart beat for the world that God loves. So I'm like, yay, there's one guy, but boo, the odds still don't seem very good for me. And at that time, I started asking this question, what makes the difference, right? What makes the difference between eh, this life that's all about myself, comfort, safety, security, and a life of love that is lived for the world that God loves? And at that time, I kind of had a hunch, kind of had a working theory, um, and I felt like <clears throat> it was relationship. And actually, so that was, that was my hunch when I was 21 that that was it, but I didn't know exactly what that would look like. And now that I'm on the way other end, not the end, let's just say I'm in the middle of the journey, um, I have found that for me that has been the case and it has been what has sustained me um, and sort of kept me on this track because I'm all about me. Like I would have gotten off a long time ago were it not for relationship. 
in a few ways. First, relationship with God. And I don't mean religion. I don't mean that in a cliche way. I mean, it kind of sounds like, you know, the pastor who says, like, what do I have in this paper bag? And all the kids yell, Jesus, because that's always the right answer. Right? So I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about setting your eyes on the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you noticed that, like, when I was 18, I was a little bit of a black and white thinker and um, a little bit judgy. I'll say it. I was. Maybe I still am. But it's not about my judgments, right? Because we know what life that really is life looks like in the person of Jesus, not in my judgments, my opinions. So I would say, keep your eyes on the person of Jesus to know what the shape, the pattern of your life is supposed to look like. And second, I would say, stay in relationship with people who are on the margins. Because the temptation is to graduate get a job, pay back student loans, which could take forever. Next thing you know, it's, it's the house in the suburbs and the minivan and the, um, I actually have children that I love and I actually am, put them in car seats in a minivan. Um, but living a life that ends up being more about ourselves than the world that God loves. Uh, on the left here is my friend John Hoover. John was born in India with intellectual disability, physical disability. And what that means is he speaks a little differently and he walks a little differently. And John Hoover is one of the most fantastic human beings on the planet. The other two girls are his sister Diane, who was born in Uganda, and his sister May, who's one of my daughter's best friends, who was also born in India. So one day, John's family's driving by um, <laughs> in their minivan with their seven children. And John gets out and he hands me a piece of paper and there's words about a tuxedo. And I'm like, why am I looking at a tuxedo-related piece of paper? And what I realize as I'm reading is that John, senior in high school, has been nominated for the homecoming court at his school. I'm like, what? That's awesome. I go to the football game, and I swear, I, I, you know, I look up in the bleachers, and there were more fans for John Hoover just to, you know, shout at halftime than for any one of those football players. Um, I'm sorry, football players, but it was like the kingdom of God up in there. So family, friends, neighbors, uh, really exciting to be there cheering for John. And so you know how it goes, halftime, uh, John is escorted by his mom, and as they're walking along the football field, the announcer says, John Hoover works at the YMCA, he has his own apartment, downtown Durham, and, and when the announcer said that, like all the senior guys go crazy, what, like yay! And the whole world is cheering for John Hoover, and it was a taste of the kingdom. And so I've done my cheering work, and I feel like, yay, that was so great. And then I it's been so long since I've been in high school, I forgot how it goes. I forgot that they crown a queen and crown a king. And I start getting all nervous inside, like, maybe I'll be the queen, maybe they'll say my name. Nope. But I did, I felt that nervous. And, um, and, and I'm going through it in my mind, like, of course, this is students who are voting. They're not going to vote for John Hoover. That's crazy. Um, and they announce it, and they say this other kid's name, like Frank Smith. I'm like, pfft dump Frank Smith, and I, and I turn off, I was videotaping, turn off my camera, and so of course, so this is it, on the right is the photographer, right next to her is John Hoover, and his mom Tracy, far left, Frank Smith with his crown, Queen also being crowned, and, um, and it's too bad I didn't leave my phone uh, going, because what happens is they take the obligatory picture, but then Frank Smith takes his crown, and he gives it to John 
Hoover, and like he crowns John Hoover, homecoming king, the crowd goes wild, uh, right? Every moment it just gets better and better. It's beautiful, and then all of a sudden I'm like, maybe Frank Smith's not so bad. <laughs> um, there they are. Did John wear the crown to school on Monday? Yes, he did. Not every king takes his reign that seriously. <laughs> but I'm driving home, and I look at my picture, and I'm like, why does this kid look so familiar? And then I realize, oh my gosh, I totally know Frank Smith. In fact, I lent him a Halloween costume when he was 10 years old. Don't know if I ever got that back. <laughs> but I realize I know him. He's this fantastic young man. So that week, I can't not go to his grandma's house, who lives like two blocks from me, and say, well done, milady. Like, you raised a fabulous human being here. And what I learned that I had not known is that although they grew up in different houses, Frank Smith has a sister with an intellectual disability. So when Frank Smith looks at John Hoover, he doesn't see somebody who uh, talks differently, walks differently. What he sees is somebody who's worthy of dignity and respect and honor and love. But that's because of Frank's relationship with his sister. People, this is the win. As we're on relationships with folks in the margins, it changes our vision. It changes the way we see people. It changes the way we love people. <clears throat> Another way to be in relationship with somebody on the world's margins is um, my, my family and I sponsor this kiddo, Joshua, who lives in India. And yes, it probably changes Joshua's life. I know that it does because there's this church in his community now that makes sure his physical needs are met, spiritual needs, uh, school, social, the whole business. I know it changes Joshua's life, but it changes us when we're in relationship with folks on the margins. My kiddos, uh, when they do that rope prayer at dinner time, they pray for Joshua. Joshua prays for us. Don't want to talk about my family, though. I want to talk about college students. I know a number of college students who are sponsoring a kiddo through Compassion. And yes, I'm excited for the kiddo, but I'm excited for the college students because it changes us. Um, when I thought about selling my clothes, like, to be able to make some Xerox copies, I'm like, they're 10 cents. That tells me I didn't have any money when I was in college. If you also have no money, here's the win. It's an email to family and friends. It's put a letter in your church bulletin that says, I'm sponsoring a kid, and one Friday night a month, I'm going to babysit for you. Uh, stay out as long as you want and give me $38. People, that is so doable. One night a month change a life forever, and not just that life, but your life. A relationship with folks on the margins forms and shapes us. Middle of December, my daughter and I were invited to a party, and I'm not a party person. I'm not an extrovert like this one right here. Um, not at all, but I find out that this is the party. It's like make a plate of snacks, sit down at a table, draw a picture, and write a Christmas card to somebody who is on death row in North Carolina. I'm like, pfft, best party ever. <laughs> My daughter and I go, and what we don't realize is that she's going to draw this beautiful, like, peace and love, and she sends it to a fella who writes back to us. And gosh, in just these short four months, we've started this pen pal relationship. Let me just say, he's been in solitary confinement for six months, which gives him Lots more free time than we have to write letters. So we've got all these letters from Bill, and he's a poet too. So he's sending us these poems that he's written. And he asked if my Zoe, who's an artist, would illustrate one of his poems. And she just did this this weekend. And right, she's busy like you guys. 
it did take her four months to illustrate one poem to get around to it, but I'm sure it's great for Bill. It's great for me and for Zoe because being in relationships with folks on the margins shapes and forms us. And the third thing is be in relationship with those who share your commitment to a world in need. And I'll just say, this is what has sustained me, left to my own devices. Like, would I go for the, the big house, the nice car, the whole business? Of course. But I have these friends who are walking the journey with me. Six years ago, John's mom sends out an email. And, and the subject line was, what if? What if, you know, a lot of us live together and our friends with disabilities would have access to a bus line, to jobs, to volunteer opportunities. You know, what if? That was like about six years ago. We started meeting, praying about it. Three years ago, it comes to pass. We move into like this two-block neighborhood of Durham, North Carolina, downtown. It was like fourplex apartment buildings that had been renovated for us. And these are my neighbors. Do I live in Disneyland? Sort of. Uh, at any moment, like a game of broom ball or like slip and slide can, can break out. The reason it's such a joy to live there is because everybody is received exactly as they are. And I don't mean my friends with disabilities. I mean, that's what they offer to me, right? Who's always thinking like, you know, does my hair look right? Like, oh, this big fat bulge. And we are received, everybody, just come and visit. You will be received exactly as you are. It's a dreamy slice of life that never would have happened had I not been friends with Tracy, who loved people on the world's margins. The woman who lives across the street from me is named Susan. Regularly, she comes up with these harebrained schemes. So, like a typical one is, hey, Margo, you know how we know this um, single mom without a high school degree and she doesn't really have a home and she just couch surfaces? surfs, wouldn't it be awesome if those of us with motor vehicles could organize so that she can get to her job, not in Durham, but her job cleaning hotel rooms in the next city over, like in Raleigh, and her daughter could get to daycare over here, and no, not at exactly the same time, like front end, back end, it'll all be different times. Wouldn't that be so great, Margo? <laughs> like, uh, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe. And so she drags me and like, given my druthers, I would be so happy at my laptop for 12 hours a day. But because I have this friend, she drags me into a life of love. Over the last, check out my neighborhood. It used to look like that. Actually, parts of it still do look like that. Over the last few months, I call them the young people in my neighborhood. They are in their 20s. <laughs> and the young people, several of them have been praying and they discerned this vision for a house of hospitality where people with and without disabilities live together. There's like a chapel for morning devotions, evening compline. Uh, the breakfast table is always open for anybody who's hungry. And like I'm an oldie now, so I hear that and I'm like, ah, I know it kind of sounds good, but exhausting. But um, I am a person who has secured a mortgage. And so I sit them down like Greg Janice, I want to talk about mortgages. I want to talk about property tax. <laughs> and uh, so, right, I'm part of the team that hopefully is going to make this house of hospitality a reality. Would I ever have been drawn in were I not friends with um, these fabulous folks who are listening to God's heart for the world? No, I would not. Relationship with folks who share our commitments is what's going to sustain us on this journey. Week from Saturday, people. Samford gives back you're going to be sent out to who knows where to do stuff. If you've done it before, stuff is like, I don't know, 
raking, mowing, cleaning, painting, organizing. And as you're doing it, I just want to ask you to stay open to the possibility of relationship, right? Don't get weird and awkward about it, but just keep your eyes open for the possibility that the stuff becomes a way to relationship. My church does something similar. Let's call it Margot's Church Gives Back. And on Margot's Church Gives Back Day, they send us out and they sent me to kind of a shelter, and my job was folding and organizing clothes that had been donated. But as I'm there, they're telling us about the shelter part where women and children um, come in, and for their safety and for everything else, they get sort of locked in at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock at night, and it's super boring. And I hear that, and I'm like, that's the worst. But I say to myself, oh, I've got beads. <laughs> so one night, my daughter and I go, and we hang out with the women and children, and we have our beads, and we make bracelets and necklaces. We only went one time, but who would we meet? We, meet, we met a mom and her two daughters. A few weeks later... We're at the public library, and who do we see but the mom and her two daughters. A few months later, I'm driving my big empty minivan to the grocery store, and who do I see but a mom and one of her daughters, who should have been in school, and they've got this like rickety cart with like a hundred bags of groceries on it. I'm like, hey, I got a minivan, people. <laughs> and I know you, relationship is what forms us into people who love like Jesus loved. So. A week from Saturday, just be open to the possibility of relationship. Friends, you were made for life that really is life. And I'll say that if you purpose, starting now, purpose to be in relationship with God, with the person of Jesus, and in relationship with folks who live on the world's margins, and in relationship with people who share your commitments, this is what will happen. What will happen is that you will look at your life at 30, at 46, at 55, at 90, and what you'll see is, I did not live a life that was safe, but I did live life that really was life. Let's pray. God, you've given us this pattern for a really blessed life in the person of Jesus. And although we're tempted to be all about ourselves, I ask that you would fix our eyes on the person of Jesus. And I pray for each person in this room that you would give us the courage to make small choices each day that are forming us more and more into his image. I ask this in the power of the Spirit in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.